Well, welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. We're your hosts, Robin Mullins and Keely McCabot. Nick Bridges, our co-host, couldn't join us today as he's in Las Vegas attending the 2018 annual meeting for the National Council for Public History. Instead, we have a special guest host, Nick Johnston. We have two Nicks on the No History staff and figured he would be the perfect guest to take over other Nicks' place. He also happens to be an expert on today's topic. He's a dungeon master with over a decade of experience. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) Are you excited to talk about Dungeons and Dragons? Incredibly. Demogorgons, the Mind Flayer, the Veil of Shadows. These monsters and concepts have become part of our daily conversations thanks to Mike, Will, Lucas, Dustin, and Eleven. Stranger Things took the world by storm when it premiered in July of 2016. Since then, many of us have been sucked into the world of Hawkins, Indiana, where the monsters of Dungeons and Dragons lurk. The popularity of Stranger Things has brought us all into an upside down, where Dungeons and Dragons is no longer a niche cult classic game but rather one of which many of us are familiar, even if only through the experiences of Mike and his friends. Whether you're a dungeon master, a level four rogue, a fan of Stranger Things, or perplexed by everything I've said so far, there's certainly history waiting to be uncovered here. Join us today as we notice the history of Dungeons & Dragons. First, um, I think it's important that we maybe get a crash course on what exactly Dungeons and Dragons even is. So, Nick, could you please uh, take it away and bring us all into this world with you? Absolutely. So, for those unfamiliar with the game, D&D is a fantasy role-playing game invented by Gary Gygax and Dave Arnston in the early 70s. Um, The game has two roles. The players, who take on roles of characters in a fantastical world, and the dungeon master, who describes the world to the players and controls the monsters and people within that world. He also takes on the role of explaining to the players how their interactions with the world are playing out. The game differs from most traditional board games, in that the rules are more like a computer operating system. They govern a wide range of actions that the players might choose to undertake, from trying to persuade a person to do something, to jumping over a gap, or attacking a monster. These rules can be applied to almost any fantasy world or situation that the dungeon master or the players can imagine. Successes or failures of actions undertaken by both the players and the uh, monsters or people within the world are determined by rolling a variety of polyhedral dice, from the standard six-sided die you'll be familiar with from most board games to uh, the 20-sided die that has become almost synonymous with the game. The result is a game of shared storytelling that can vary widely from group to group, session to session, where no one, not even the Dungeon Master, truly knows where the story will go next. In many ways, it's uh, taking the old form of telling stories around a campfire and adding audience participation. That's awesome. And do you think the fact that it can be any sort of fantasy world or any story arc is part of the reason why it's so popular? I know myself, I've played a Battle Royale version of D&D before, but I've never actually played, I guess, like the, what you call like the original version of D&D. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lot of what uh, has uh, allowed it to last uh, what is now 40 plus years, that you have a game where um, you can create your own world. If you want to jump into Lord of the Rings, you can find a way to do that. If you want to work your way into 
or mix and mash other fantasy worlds together that you enjoy, you can do that. And all of it, you're you're sitting around with your friends, you know, putting the screens away and uh, and just telling a story together, which is something that these days is a rare opportunity. When did Dungeons and Dragons sort of come to be? How that? How did it all start, Nick? Dungeons and Dragons evolved from another tabletop uh, game, wargaming. This hobby uh, involves the use of models uh, that represent soldiers, cavalry vehicles, and scenery to recreate historic battles. So it really is embedded within history and an interest in history. Yes, the people who played this game were the real hardcore history nerds. They were our people! (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Nice. In fact, uh, fun fact, uh, Wargaming actually originates with a figure you may have heard of, uh, the author of The Time Machine, H.G. Wells. He developed the game with several of his friends uh, while playing with his son's toy soldiers. He compiled rules of these games into a short book called titled Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. Ugh. Yeah, it's a problem. The title's a problem. I'm not going to hide that. So cringy. It took five years off my life. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, really interesting that it goes back that far. I I love H.G. Wells. I've read a lot of his books. I haven't read his rule book for this game, but I now am very interested in wanting to play it. Well, if you're interested, it was published in 1912, so uh, the copyright has expired and it is available on Project Gutenberg. So by the 1960s, wargaming was a growing hobby that drew those interested in history and inventing their own games, which, you know, is still true today, it seems like. Players recreated historic battles from the World Wars to the American Civil War using models and often rules developed by the players. Rules were constantly tweaked to be as historically accurate as possible, with players often researching history to better replicate battles on the board. Games even had a referee who moderated the rules and settled debates on the finer points of history that arose during games. I think that's really interesting if you consider the fact that history itself is like a narrative. So if people are getting into it over the fine points of history, it's like, well, who did you read? Like, what what are you basing this on? So I think that's interesting. Yeah, and they're creating their own performativity and their own narrativity into it by deciding to reenact it or deciding to play through it and by even acknowledging that there are different ways that it could play out or different nuances. You can't play the same game twice, right? You can't reenact the same historic thing the same way twice. And what does that tell us about history and the way that we interpret it and the way that we experience it? Yeah, and what can we learn when um, when we're looking at an event and seeing, you know, how many different ways could it go? What were the factors that were involved and how can we see where it might have gone and what does that tell us about what actually did happen? Absolutely. So interesting. So much fun. I think I'm probably going to want to play Dungeons and Dragons by the end of this. I I already want to. (laughs) Well, two players um, of Wargaming were Gary Gygax and Dave Aronson. Gygax was born in Chicago in 1938 before moving to his lifelong home of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin at a young age. He grew up to become a cobbler who discovered a love of wargaming. He became a major figure in the wargaming community, founding the International Federation of Wargaming at the age of 29, and soon after starting the Lake Geneva Wargames Convention, or Gen Con, in Lake Geneva. It was at the second Gen Con in 1969 that Gygax met Arnston. Arnston at that point was a 22-year-old history student and part-time security guard from Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Arneson was impressed with the older Gygax, and the two agreed to collaborate on a rules system for one of Arneson's favorite areas of history, Napoleonic-era naval battles. Uh, is this by any chance related to Arneson's height? Was he a short man? I am not sure about that, <laughs> but that's an interesting theory. <laughs> I, just, like, I, I just thought it was, you know, my... Who knows? <laughs> have to look into that. We will have to look that up. <laughs> In 1971, Gygax partnered with a friend to write Chain Mail, a war game game that simulated medieval combat. For fun, Gygax included a supplement with the game that added rules for fantasy elements such as dragons and magic spells, which, I mean, dragons, magic spells. When it gets ooky spooky, this is where it turns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, who wouldn't want to add that to a fun game about medieval times? Fun fact. Despite having a soft spot for fantasy, Gygax hated The Lord of the Rings, uh, which he found to be boring and didn't have enough action for him. Ugh, Gygax, you are dead to me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Council of Elrond is like a slog. I remember reading it when I was 11 and I was like, this will never end, I'm trapped here forever. But I do really like Lord of the Rings. Maybe he just didn't pass that. Maybe he just didn't get to see the movies because they weren't out yet. Maybe that would have changed things for <laughs> Orlando him. Bloom would have changed his mind, I think. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, and as much of a fan as I am of the movies and the books, uh, without his desire for a more for fantasy that suited his own needs more, it's possible he might not have invented the game. So, so I guess we can forgive him for not loving Lord of the Rings. A little bit. A, a little bit. Okay, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Arnston picked up Chainmail and quickly adapted the rules, adding some from other games and imagining fantasy elements to build on what was in the rules already. The result was a game where players only controlled one character rather than a whole army and entered dungeons created by Arnston filled with traps, monsters, and treasure. Arnston adapted the referee role into something much more, a person who described the world to the players. This role was the dungeon master, and suddenly, the game resembled D&D. Interest in Arneson's creations spread through the wargaming community, and in 1972, at Gen Con, Arneson ran a session of this new game for Gygax and several of his friends. Gygax was blown away by the game, which reminded him of exploring old steam tunnels under the abandoned asylum where he grew, near where he grew up. Uh, come again? That is the most old-timey sentence ever. I love that. Like, I remember playing in old steam tunnels under the asylum as a young man. And it's what him and his friends would do uh, back then. And it meant that he had this sort of sense of living out fantasy in real life. But it also kind of helps explain why this game was created and how it kind of came about. Like, you know, I feel like if Mm -hmm. if that's your pastime, things are starting to add up for me. It's possibly a good reason to come play this game and not send kids outside, as bad as that sounds. <laughs> Get in the house! The sun is out! Get inside! Stop <laughs> playing in the old insane asylum. <laughs> Gygax asked Arneson for the rules when they were done playing, and then expanded upon them. Gygax was unable to find a publisher for the game, so he decided to found his own company in 1974 to publish it, called Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR for short. Is it like tactical studies rules, or is it like tactical studies rules? Definitely the second one. Okay. <laughs> the more boring version is absolutely what he went with. Because okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty um, mundane name for a company. <laughs> Probably easy to copyright. That's true. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's true. So um, one of the challenges that Gygax had with game design in general, but especially with Dungeons & Dragons, was developing odds that he liked. 
He found the bell curve created by rolling two six-sided dice too predictable for what he liked. He tried several methods before discovering polyhedral dice, and polyhedral dice themselves have a long history stretching back thousands of years, which we will not be getting into. But, I mean, maybe that's something you want to research in your own time. Absolutely take a look at it. It's fascinating. So the game was an instant hit, remaining difficult to find for several years. Incredibly popular, it began to become a part of popular culture, with a cartoon show and new editions of the game being made. The game's design inspired designers of early computer games who saw this fantasy genre gain popularity, and it has inspired some of the films that we will discuss. When D&D emerged, it suddenly drew women into this primarily male wargaming community. Many of these women struggled to play in this male space that was both passively and also actively chauvinistic and sexist. There were a lot of really unkind ways of describing uh, women that were used in the original games for wargaming, which we won't get into, but not great. Not a great space. However, many women, such as Jean Wells and Penny Williams, managed to move into designing and playing the game that helped change the space as well as the game itself. Today, the game and the community, while still not perfect, are far more gender positive than originally. It's mm-hmm. interesting. I find, like, you know, in comic books and fantasy things like fantasy artwork, Dungeons and Dragons, magic cards in particular. I had some friends when I was in high school who played magic cards, and all of the, fe- not all of them, but the majority of the female characters, it's just the way that they're represented, it's difficult to connect with them and it's kind of like a red flag i don't know how you feel in situations like that robin but it's like a red flag you're like oh this isn't for me right it's not it's not done in a way that is inviting for us to take part or feel like we're meant to be in that space right right? like it's it's for somebody else yeah yeah like the the representation is very it seems very directed at a particular person or particular um, group of people and it's like you're not you're not welcome here so which no, or, or it's just not interesting to to what might be interesting to some other women and so then they don't feel like it's something they would want to pursue whereas all the things that we've talked about so far are actually really exciting and interesting to mm-hmm. me but I might not have felt that way if we hadn't been having this conversation and looking at the history and having it described in these ways it has been presented in other aspects before that seem a little less welcoming to the interests of mainstream or or the wider female experience, maybe. And what's interesting is, uh, you make note of this today, uh, Jean Wells made note of the exact same uh, phenomenon when she was first getting interested in the game in the mid-70s, before she became one of the lead designers on uh, several of the game's uh, stories. She talked about the fact that seeing these images of women that were presented uh, alongside the game made a number of uh, her friends, you know, shy away from it, where she decided to push past that. And she was known for writing uh, articles um, sort of promoting feminism in the uh, uh, D&D community through most of her time while working at TSR. That's so cool and amazing because obviously in order for change to happen, you need women to move into spaces that seem... Like they're maybe hostile or just not as welcoming. And I think it's really wonderful that women clearly cared and that Jean Wells was one of the people who was able to brace herself and push in and say that she wanted to be part of it and she wanted to make it something for more women. Mm -hmm. So as Nick said, Jean Wells was the first woman hired by Gygax himself, in fact, to design games by TSR in the late 70s. 
She had been an avid player since college and was soon hard at work designing and editing and illustrating games. She was known, as we've already talked about, for pushing boundaries with her additions to the game's content. Although, for doing so, TSR at times rewrote her work, which, I mean, is kind of expected, I would think, but still a little unfortunate. Mm -hmm. She also penned articles on the game such as Women Want Equality and Why Not to push for equality in the game. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2012. All this success that D&D was experiencing led to difficulties. When Gygax largely ignored Armstrong's part in developing the game, Gygax and Armstrong clashed in court over credit for D&D. The results of said court cases are now sealed, but Arnston was properly credited on D&D products after the settlement. So I think we can all kind of guess, or piece together, probably the outcome. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Do you think they rolled for it? Oh, I wish they did. <laughs> <laughs> then, Gygax found himself ousted from TSR by a management that was tired of his interference. And soon after mismanagement involving further legal fights with Gygax, attempts at creating expensive new products like CD-ROM games and a cyclical selling scheme that depended on sales never falling saw the company fall deeply into debt and collapsing. D&D was only saved when its current owner, Wizards of the Coast, bought it from TSR. Wizards of the Coast quickly mended fences with Gygax and sought support from him and Arnston while launching new editions of the game, which have proven successful and lasting. And coincidentally, Wizards of the Coast, also the publishers of the Magic Cards you mentioned earlier. Okay. Uh That's where they made the money to buy uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So one thing that's important to talk about, I think, is although many people know about D&D, there's also sort of this like gray cloud hanging over D&D depending on who you talk to. Um, And that is tied into the satanic panic in the 80s and the early 90s too. I can vaguely recall some of the things on like Maury Povich about my kids is Satanist and it would just be a kid with black eyeliner. And it all kind of was tied into D&D. Definitely. Business troubles were only part of D&D's troubles back in the 1980s. The game came under a lot of fire for its alleged connections to Satanic or demon worship as part of the wider Satanic panic that was going on. The Satanic Panic was a moral panic in the U.S. and North America in the uh, 1980s concerned about Satanic ritual abuse. The occult started seeping into the public consciousness in a real big way in the 1970s. It seemed to be everywhere and was both fascinating and horrifying. People were genuinely scared of its impact on society and especially on kids. Heading into the 1980s, there was increased concern about children's safety. And with more women in the workforce, more kids were staying home, alone, or in daycare, or with babysitters. And there was a huge fear of kidnappings as well as abuse. After all, this is the age of stranger danger and kids' faces on milk cartons, rumors of the Halloween candies that were stuffed with razor blades, and all kinds of other horrific things. But, just to be very clear, this does not mean that we can blame the satanic panic on working mothers. Because, as we all know, they have enough societal guilt as it is. Leave them alone. (laughs) And so, of course, rising in popularity in the midst of all of these things, all this turmoil that's going on, was this game that was literally called Dungeons & Dragons. Not exactly a comfort to the folks who were terrified of the Halloween candy. There were also some high-profile cases that linked D&D with something darker. In 1979, a university student named James Dallas Egbert III disappeared from his dorm room, leaving a suicide note which appeared suspicious. A private investigator, William Deere, a former detective, was hired by the family. After looking into uh, Egbert's life, 
he really pounced on the fact that Egbert had been playing D&D. Specifically, Egbert played D&D with his friends in the old steam tunnels under the, underneath the school, which were eerie and atmospheric. Again, that theme of tunnels steam coming up. Steam tunnels, too. It's like... <laughs> when Deer explained his theory to the press, they ran with the angle. And the case got everyone talking about D&D, but in a way that associated with this gruesome, scary mystery. And it was immediately popular, but also immediately horrifying. Egbert was eventually found. He contacted Deer and admitted he had run away from home after attempting to commit suicide. Egbert suffered from depression and struggled with coming out as a homosexual, as well as drug abuse. And this led Egbert to commit suicide a year after he was found. So while Deer and others have since tried to show um, that those issues that he was struggling with, uh, and not D&D, were to blame for Egbert's disappearance and his eventual death, the D&D story was really hard to overcome. It had already gotten its legs and gotten out there, kind of like the cart before the horse. It was really difficult to pull it back once it had already been out there. And obviously, it's a very complicated situation and really unfortunate. Um, but Dungeons & Dragons wasn't exactly to blame for no. what had happened. And this story quickly even emerged uh, to become like an urban legend. I remember, you know, growing up in the early 90s and still hearing stories about uh, somebody who played D&D and gone into uh, tunnels and sewers and, you know, never come out and things like that. So it shows how pervasive this story quickly became, even though the truth of it was lost and showed that D&D wasn't actually really to blame at all for this. It was just a pastime that, that Egbert had enjoyed well. Uh, So through these examples, you can see how just as the game was gaining popularity, Dungeons and Dragons became associated with this dark, evil, scary, satanic underbelly that seemed to be lurking in North America in the 1980s. It certainly seemed on the surface of the way that it was being portrayed in the media as though it was to blame and it was involved in a whole bunch of other really heartbreaking and awful stories. This negative association with D&D was difficult to shake. It stayed with the game until the resurgence of D&D in the 2000s, when the moral panic of the 1980s and the 1990s dissipated a bit and people could see that it was just a game. Fun fact, while the satanic panic gave D&D a negative connotation that was tough to shake in popular culture, it also kept the game sales up when interest might otherwise have begun to fade. The connection to the occult and the sense of it being forbidden encouraged many younger people to try the game for the first time. Always want what you can't have. <laughs> Nothing gets something into a teenager's hands faster than telling them not only is it forbidden, but it's dangerous. But now, things couldn't be more different. After decades of fantasy and magic fed into Western society via movies, books, and television, think The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, and D&D appearing in movies and TV shows such as Community, Freaks and Geeks, Corner Gas, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, The Simpsons, and even, in fact, Lizzie McGuire. Yes! Gordo! (laughs) Gordo uh, plays the game. It's called Dwarf Lord, and he becomes a Dwarf Lord, and they have to rescue him from his obsession. It's fantastic. (laughs) And I mean, Stranger Things, too. Also, D&D and Stranger Things. In fact, Stranger Things has really introduced a new generation uh, to D&D where the kids on the show uh, are seen playing the game and using the strategies they learn in it to fight the monsters in real life around them. D&D is also mentioned in songs, although they tend to be pretty obscure. Call Me Lothar by B.A. Johnson, which is a love song that starts, For you, I'd roll a 20-sided die anytime, and you got so much charisma points that I swear that it's a crime. And that's pretty amazing, I think. 
And very different from parents' reactions in the past, it seems that parents these days couldn't be happier about this resurgence. Um, as per The New Yorker, in 2017, gathering your friends in a room, setting your devices aside, and taking turns to contrive a story that exists largely in your head gives off a radical whiff for a completely different reason than it did in 1987. In the fear that a role-playing game might wound the psychologically frail seems to have flipped on its head. Therapists use D&D to get troubled kids to talk about experiences that might otherwise embarrass them, and children with autism use the game to improve their social skills. Because D&D is driven by people's stories, it has been able to evolve with players over time. In 2016, writer Tina Hassania explained that playing D&D left me feeling empowered in a way that watching Beyonce videos never has. Take that, Beyonce. <laughs> She's coming for Beyonce. The beehive is coming for her. She continues, Instead of looking up to a role model, the game prompted me to discover the badass warrior within. More than providing the opportunity to play out your own fantasies, D&D offers a safe space for trying idea identities, ideas, voices, mannerisms, roles, attitudes, and story turns and ways of thinking. It's the perfect game for someone still coming to grips with who they are, trying to understand their place in the world. By building a fictional character, you essentially learn to build your own self. So women, as easily as men, can become engaged in creating or playing storylines, collaborating with one another in moving through the adventure, or otherwise making choices and discovering outcomes. Although, I think it's worth noting that Beyoncé does have an alternate character. She has an alternate version of herself called Sasha Fierce. And while I am no expert in Beyoncé, it certainly seems like that's kind of in keeping with this whole idea of building out your own fantasies and these other roles that you can play. So, I mean, maybe my D&D character will be named Sasha Fierce if I ever do play. I think you may have discovered your badass warrior within. (laughs) Haven't we all? (laughs) (laughs) This has been a great uh, journey for us all today. (laughs) And D&D really has permeated the culture. Now there are all kinds of people who play, including celebrities. People like Vin Diesel, Stephen Colbert, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Robin Williams played, and even Stephen King. They all play D&D. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining us and for talking us through some of the history that's part of Dungeons & Dragons. Thanks. Um, It began with History Nerds and uh, has had a really interesting history going through, so I'm glad we could take the chance to kind of look back at it. Absolutely, yeah. So that's some of the history that we've noticed in Dungeons & Dragons, and hopefully you'll be able to play Dungeons & Dragons if you haven't already and notice some history there yourself. Notice History is a no-history podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Johnston, Alice Glaze, Alina Hill, Cassandra Moss, and Stacey Devlin. A no-history record for this podcast, by the way. With audio mixing done by myself, Jessica DeLorenzio, and Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. 